0: One of the blights upon modern evangelicalism is the flippancy and irreverency with which uh, so much worship is approached and the approach to God in so much of modern evangelical is flippant and irreverent. Um, Recently, a video clip made its way around the internet and went viral among Christians. It was a video trip of Victoria Osteen, whose uh, husband is famous for uh, his big church in Texas. And in this video clip of Victoria Osteen, she was standing behind her husband's pulpit, but she was wearing her own sheep's clothing. She didn't need to borrow his sheep's clothing. She has her own for those special occasions. And she said this, quote, I am a wolf. No, sorry, hold on. Nope, no, something else in it, in mind. <laughs> quote, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself, end quote. Now, I hope that you recognize, I hope that that makes you nauseous to hear that. I hope that that deeply offends you to hear that because it is a deeply offensive sentiment. But the problem is that 90% of evangelicalism and 90% of what passes for Christianity in our own nature would see nothing wrong with that quotation whatsoever. They would think that that is an expression, a statement of rock-solid orthodoxy. That of course we come to church, For ourselves. Of course, we come to church to get something out of it. We come here to be happy. We come here to be to to enjoy the worship service, not to work, not to sacrifice. Uh, Preaching in modern evangelicalism, if you can call it preaching, is, is 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 a talk that is geared to the lowest common element of what is called Christian in our culture. The lowest common denominator, it is intentionally designed to appeal to the fleshly lusts, the base appetites and the the cultured rebellion of unregenerate men and women. And worship, if you can call it that, in modern evangelicalism, is carefully crafted to entertain and to to make people comfortable. And you've seen these examples in church services that you've gone to or church services that you've seen on television where Pastor Happy Slappy gets out on the stage and it's, hey, 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 church, how you doing today? And he rallies people up and gets everybody excited and, hey, we're here for this. And everything is designed, the preaching, the worship, everything is designed to make everybody that is there comfortable. And what is communicated is this you just come in and you sit back and you kick up your feet. Grab a cup of joe on the way in through the foyer. Make sure you get one of the cookies or donuts that is out there. And and you're just going to come in here and sit back and relax and take it all in. We're going to entertain you. We're going to make you feel comfortable. We're going to make you feel at home. And when it's all said and done, you can walk away from here and we've done all the work for you. It is a flippant and irreverent approach to worship. Now, the more man centered the church in America becomes, and the more me centered our culture becomes, the more flippant will be and irreverent will be the worship that the church offers to God. The flippancy and irreverency is a direct result of a man centered gospel and a man centered theology and a man centered philosophy of ministry. When everything is done for men, you will get flippancy and irreverency. It has to happen that way, it will always happen that way. It can't be otherwise. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon has some wisdom for us concerning our worship and how we approach to God. Now in Ecclesiastes 5, we are in this middle section of Ecclesiastes between the introductory material of chapters 1 through 3 and sort of the concluding chapters of 11 and 12. We're in this section where Solomon is is doing something that is sort of typical of of ancient uh, Eastern wisdom literature. He is addressing a bunch of different topics. He brings up a bunch of different subjects and gives us observations and wisdom on each one of these subjects. And in chapter 5, he addresses God and our approach to God. So as we go through this, we're going to read verses 1 to 7. We're not going to cover all of that today, but we are going to read verses 1 to 7. This describes our approach to God, and there's wisdom here that Solomon offers to us. Now, there are three things that he addresses concerning worship. First, sacrifices and how they are offered and the attitude with which they are offered in verse 1. Second, prayer in verses 2 through 3. And then vows, the making and keeping of vows in verses 4 through 7. Those three elements of worship, sacrifices, prayer, and the making and keeping of vows. Those are the three things that Solomon addresses. So I want you to look for those things as we read through Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. So let's begin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay." Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Then verse 8. Solomon picks up a different subject. So this whole passage here, it deals with God and our approach to God. Now, you'll notice that the the passage is littered with language of Old Testament worship. You notice a reference to the house of God in verse 1. He talks about making vows and keeping vows in verses 4 to 7. He talks about prayer and bringing things up in the presence of God. Uh, Solomon talks about the sacrifice and drawing near to God to listen. This is the language of Old Testament worship. So that is what Solomon is describing, and there's much here that follows after the pattern of Old Testament worship, which you'll see here in just a moment. The passage is unique in a number of ways, these first seven verses, um, primarily because of the emphasis of this passage, especially in light of the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll notice the repeated reference to God. God is mentioned eight times in these seven verses, making it the highest concentration of talk about God or discussion of God anywhere in the book of Ecclesiastes, in other parts of the book and for the rest of the book, God is brought up, sometimes in a, in a somewhat negative light, as if God is, is vexing or taxing men with certain tasks under the sun, sometimes in a positive light, but, but not, as, not as concentrated as He does here. He is obviously describing God, our relationship to God, and how it is that we approach God. So it's unique because of its emphasis. It's also unique because of its tone. Do you notice that other than an ending at verse 7, the the end of verse 7 which describes emptiness, there's really no reference here to vanity or vainness or emptiness or meaninglessness or striving after the wind or being under the sun. Do you notice that? All that language that characterizes the rest of Ecclesiastes is absent from this passage. Why is that? Because Solomon is discussing God and focusing our attention on Him, and so when our focus is on God, and He is the center of what we are talking and thinking about, guess what gets pushed out of the way? The emptiness and the vanity. Now, you remove God from the picture, and what comes in to fill its place? The nihilism, the emptiness, the vanity, the meaninglessness, and all of that that we have seen through Ecclesiastes. So... Right now, it is a very positive tone that Solomon is striking because he's talking about God and our approach to God. And if you're hoping to have more discouragement and depression and talk of vanity and emptiness, just wait. Solomon will return to his lamenting of life's meaninglessness soon enough. But for now, we get some positive stuff from Ecclesiastes. So we can rejoice in that, right? The depressing stuff will come back. So just sit tight. We get later on in chapter 5 and Solomon will slip right back into that sort of cynical attitude, but for now it's very positive. It's also kind of unique because it strikes a note here in chapter 5 that Solomon actually concludes with at the end of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to see how both the tone and the theme here are similar to how Solomon concludes the book. Turn to chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, the very last verses in Ecclesiastes. 12, verse 13. This is the conclusion. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. What is the conclusion of all of it? Fear God, keep His commandments. This applies to everyone, for He will judge all men in every act, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Look how verse 7 of chapter 5 ends. Solomon says, rather, what? Fear God, so it is almost as if he is already foreshadowing what the conclusion of the book is going to be. He has discussed in chapter 3 the judgment of God and that God will bring every act to judgment, every secret thing, everything hidden. He will, reckon, he will reckon it right and he will make it right. So he has already talked about the justice of God earlier in chapter 3 and now he is striking that note that he is going to conclude with, therefore we ought to fear God. But here that idea of fearing God is applied to how it is that we approach God and our worship. So let's look now at, these, at this element of our worship, which is sacrifices. And we're going to be looking, I don't mean to discourage you, but just at verse 1. But it is actually loaded with some really good stuff. And then next week, Lord willing, we will move on to the, the prayer element and the keeping and making of vows. Verse 1, let's read it again. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. So the passage is describing some very solemn and sobering uh, things, and that is why Solomon begins with a warning. Guard your steps as you draw near to God. The idea of guarding there is not the idea of protecting something. The word guard there could be translated to look over or to watch carefully. It described the, the practice of observing something. And so this is what Solomon is saying. As you come near to the house of God, you ought to observe how it is that you approach God. Pay close attention to this observe it carefully, be careful, be circumspect, be wise in how it is that you approach God. In other words, do not just come into God's presence flippantly, do not just come into God's presence irreverently, but think carefully about what it is that you are doing when you approach the house of God to worship. Now, the house of God in Solomon's context would have been describing the temple that he built known as Solomon's temple. It was a temple that he built uh, at, at his own Great expense, and it was the temple that David had envisioned and decided he wanted to build, but God kept David from building it. And then Solomon, he gave that commission, that building to Solomon. Solomon actually ended up building that temple which replaced the tabernacle. And up until that point, the tabernacle, which was the meeting that called the tent of meeting in the Old Testament, it sat on top of Mount Moriah, north of Jerusalem, and it sat on the Temple Mount, and that was where the sacrifices took place. That is where the, the priest went in once a year with the blood of the atonement into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant. That is is where the worship happened, that is where people did business with God and God met with his people. And then Solomon built a temple unto God, and it was a massive temple, a magnificent temple at his own personal great expense. And so Solomon here is describing a worship service, a typical worship service that would have gone on in the temple. That is the house of God in Solomon's context. But what does it mean in our context? Because we don't worship like they did in the Old Testament, do they? Do we? Today we don't go to a certain designated place of worship like Mount Moriah or Jerusalem or Shiloh or whatever that place it is that God might have designated. We have no particular place to worship and we don't even, we don't even regard worship in a particular building as all that essential. We, we gather here. This is a school. This is not the house of God. This is the furthest thing from the house of God. But the house of God meets here, don't we? Because we are called the household of faith. We are the living stones that God is building one upon another as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the people of God who have been redeemed and put together into the church, we gather together as the house of God. So that a church building is not a building that is actually the church. We are the church, but we call it a church building because the church meets in that building. And so it really should be called the church's building, the building where the church church meets. Currently, we gather here, and it's not a designated place. It's just one building that will be hopefully soon replaced by an entirely different building in another location. Nor do we offer sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. You, you didn't bring a lamb here today and hand it to me so that I could sacrifice it on the altar. We don't bring lamb sacrifices to the Lord anymore because Christ is our Passover lamb. So he fulfilled the intention of all of the Old Testament sacrifices and he actually did something that none of the Old Testament sacrifices could do. That is to take away sin entirely and to cleanse the conscience. Nor do we approach God through a designated priest anymore except that that priest is Jesus Christ, who himself has brought us near to God, and so he fulfills all of the Old Testament shadow of the priesthood, and he has done what all of the Old Testament priests could never do, and that is to draw us perfectly to God, and to save forever completely all those who draw near to him by faith. And so Christ is the fulfillment of that place, of that propitiatory sacrifice, and of that priesthood. And so all of that, and so many more things, have changed, but what is it that has remained the same? In what ways does our worship today Uh, reflect the Old Testament worship under the Old Covenant. There are a lot of things that have not changed. Uh, God is still God. He is still holy. He is still transcendent. He is still completely other. He is still completely righteous. His word is still true. We still must draw near to Him, though we do it a little bit differently than they did in the Old Testament. It is still a blood sacrifice that has brought us near to God and and broken down that middle wall of partition and taken away the veil. So now we have direct access to God, so we still have to draw near to Him. We still worship, and we still offer sacrifices, do, don't we? But the sacrifices that we offer are different in nature than the Old Testament sacrifices. Now we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of praise, a grateful heart. We give our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord each and every day. So this, we're still offering sacrifices, and we still now have a priesthood, but... 1 Peter says, all of us are priests, we are a royal priesthood. So all of us, because Christ is our high priest, we all function as priests in that we offer our sacrifices of ourselves directly to God, functioning in the capacity that Old Testament priests function. So you see there's all kinds of similarities between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. Why are those similarities there? For the same reason that a shadow bears certain similarities to the thing that casts the shadow. The Old Testament worship was a foreshadowing of, and it was a shadow of, everything that was to come. In Christ, He is the substance of all of it. He is the one that casts the shadow. So He is the one who has created the people of God. He is the one in whom we approach God. He is the one who is the sacrifice. So everything in the Old Testament, all of those things, were pointing back to Him. And so there, of course, are similarities between our worship today, as we are in the substance of those realities, as opposed to the worship back then, which was the shadow of those realities. And all of those things were to direct their attention to the ultimate fulfillment the one who cast the shadow, so that when he would step onto the scene, like John the Baptist, they would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they would see in Christ the fulfillment of all of that. So what then is the household of God for us? We could say that the household of God for us could describe our entire approach to God, however and wherever that might be. How is it that we approach God in our small group Bible study? In our personal devotion, in our quiet time with the Lord, in our worship time as a family, how is it that we approach God corporately as a body, as we draw near to Him? We come here together as the house of God, not because this is itself at the building, the house of God, but we gather together worshipfully. So here's what the house of God would be for us. It is our approach to God wherever and whenever it is that we approach God, particularly our corporate worship. So what is Solomon's warning? Be careful as you draw near to God. That's sound wisdom. Don't do it flippantly. Don't do it arrogantly. Don't do it haphazardly. Don't do it without any thought. Don't just come rumbling and stumbling into the presence of God, thinking that just because you're there and shouting, that he's going to pay attention to you or be pleased with what it is that you offer to him. Guard your steps and watch carefully as you draw near to him, lest you do it and offer instead the sacrifice of fools. So as we draw near, what what does this look like then as we draw near? What does a careful, considerate, thoughtful, reverent approach to God look like? Verse 1, we draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. We draw near to listen. What does it mean to draw near to listen? It's kind of like what James says in James chapter 1, verse 19, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This describes our approach to God. We we draw near unto Him to listen as opposed to speak. Now that phrase might mean a little bit more to you if you have in mind what was a typical Old Testament Jewish practice, a worship service. As the Jews would bring their sacrifice, their animal, near to the temple, they would ascend the steps of the temple, and they would never go inside the temple, but they would come up the steps of the temple to offer their lamb, their animal, to the priest who would go in and he would sacrifice that animal for the sins of that worshiper. When you did that, you did it in silence. You didn't stand in line having a conversation about the latest lamb chop recipe with the guy or the woman in front of you or behind you. You didn't do a lot of chattering. It was a solemn and serious occasion because you were bringing the best of your flock to have it killed as an innocent victim in your stead. And the whole process itself would remind you of the gravity of your sin. And you would be aware of what I owe to God and what my sin has cost me and what is required for me to approach God in worship. A sacrifice, a pure and holy and innocent sacrifice. And so the weight of your sin is on your mind as you make, the steps on, make those, your way up the steps of the temple. And you present that to the priest and he would go in and offer that sacrifice. All of this was done in silence, without speaking. After the sacrifice was made, the priest would come out and he would read the law of Moses to the people and then he would explain the meaning of that passage that he had read to the people. And when that was done, the people then would respond back with prayer and praise and even the making of vows. They would vow to do certain things and bring certain things to God. And then when that was done, the priest would offer a final and concluding benediction. So the sacrifice and then a response of hearing the Word of God, the response of prayer and and praise, and then the making of vows and then a benediction. That was your basic worship service. So these are the elements that every Jew would be familiar with. Notice how the outline of the passage follows that outline. Did you notice that? You draw near in silence to hear rather than to speak, lest you offer the sacrifice of fools. And then there is the prayer in verses 2 and 3. Then there is the making of vows in verses 4 to 7. And then, if you will, there is a closing benediction or thought in the end of verse 7, which is, rather fear God. So the order of what Solomon describes here is very similar to the order of an Old Testament worship service. So he's describing here at the very beginning of it, when you draw near to God, as you walk up the steps of the temple, that's what a Jew would be thinking, as I am approaching God to present to him what I have brought to present to him, I am to do this with carefulness and with thoughtfulness and with, with, uh, with reverence and awe, to draw near to listen, not to talk about my sacrifice, but to listen, to do so in silence, and then the priest would read and the priest would explain, and I am to hear this. The person who offers a good sacrifice to the Lord, proper worship is drawing near with an attitude of listening. And listening in the Jewish mind was not just having sound waves hit your ear, like you're hearing what I'm saying right now. Listening to a Jew and listening in Scripture was always coupled with obedience. If you did not obey or heed what you have heard, you did not listen to it. So he is describing here the attitude of a worshiper that draws near with a heart and mind inclined to hear and to obey what God's word has said. And they would, they would offer the sacrifice and then they would listen to the word of God read and they would listen to the word of God explained and then they would respond to that truth with prayer and praise and with worship. That's what it meant to draw near to hear rather than to listen, uh, to listen rather than to, to offer the sacrifice of fools. Um, When we gather here together, really drawing near to listen is the central focus of all the worship of the true church. In other words, the true church, we don't gather here together just because we like the fellowship or because we want to see people we haven't seen for seven days or because this is a warm place or because there's a potluck afterwards. We don't gather here together because this is the the dark days of winter when you can't hunt, you can't fish, you can't watch football, there's nothing good to do outside, you can't garden or be outside. We don't gather here together for those reasons. We gather here together because our primary focus as a church is the proclamation and the reading and the hearing and the obeying of Scripture. And that is what biblical preaching is. Some people think biblical preaching is uh, one of the elders of the church or a guest speaker standing up here and getting words from on high that I have received from God that I'm delivering to you and this is what you must do and then I'm going to walk back behind the green curtain to my comfy seat back here and this is what you have been commanded to do. That's not biblical preaching. Biblical preaching is both the preacher and the hearer placing themselves under the word of God and asking themselves, what has God revealed? What does that mean for us? And how will we obey this together? So, though I am the preacher here this morning, my job is not to decree to you what God has said for you to do as if I am exempt from it. I am a listener in this enterprise just as much as you are a listener in this enterprise. Not in the sense that I am not the preacher, but that I am not the authority. And so that is our goal, our central goal of all of the worship of God's people is what has God said? Because I hope you understand, and I'm certain that you do, that what God says to us is far more important than what we can say to God. Always. What God has spoken is far more important than what we say to God. So hearing from him in his word is the primary focus and emphasis of all the true church. Because that is what we desire. That is what we hunger for. That is what we long for. And so that is how we draw near to hear rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, what is then the sacrifice of fools? If we are to draw near to listen, and that is our primary motivation, what does it mean to offer the sacrifice of fools? What does that describe? Well, obviously, the sacrifice of fools then, well, notice in verse 1 that it is called evil. He says at the end of verse 1, they offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not even know that they are doing evil. So whatever the sacrifice of a fool is, it is an act of evil. And that's the first thing to notice. The sacrifice of fools is something that is called evil. We don't tend to think of worship that way, right? That wrong worship might be evil. We tend to think that if you got worship wrong, it's, "Eh, it's kind of their style. You know, it's their preference. And yeah, it's not how I would do it, but I can see why some people like that and they go for that. God doesn't do that. Nadab and Abihu didn't just offer their own personal preference when they offered strange fire before the Lord, and God killed them. Ananias and Sapphira weren't just doing it their own way, you know, kind of redesigning and reinventing worship to fit their own means. That's not how God viewed it. He, he views it as evil. Let that sink in for just a moment. Profane worship is not just worship, you know, that it got wrong a little bit. Profane worship is profane before God, because because He has decreed and decided what proper worship is, and, and we gather to worship. Not for us, as Victoria Osteen says, but for God. And why do we do it for God? Look, if I wanted to do it for us, I would stay home. I don't come to church for us, for me. I'm far more comfortable at home with my feet kicked back and watching TV. So, I don't come here to get something that I can't get seven other days, uh, that I can get seven other days of the week or six other days of the week. I come here because I come here to offer what God says I should offer to God. That should be our primary motivation. And so, we don't gather here together to offer to Him the sacrifices of fools because that is an evil thing. And notice that their ignorance of that evil does not make it right. He says, For they did not even know that what they do is evil. And Solomon doesn't say, But since they don't know that it's evil and their heart is right, it's okay. Did it matter to God if what Nadab and Abihu did with their heart was right in it and they really thought that they were offering to God an appropriate sacrifice? Would that have mattered? God would have slayed them nonetheless. Hey, do you remember, oh, his name just escaped me and I didn't even plan on it, but the, the, the man who, Uzzah, who reached out his hand while the ark was being transported and he put out his hand to steady the ark because he thought it might fall into the dirt. Do you remember that story? And what did God do? Struck him down. What was Uzzah's motive in that? Was his motive to profane the ark of God? It was not. His motive was to keep the ark of God from falling into the dirt. But his mistake was that Uzzah thought that his hands were purer than the dirt that God had made. And God struck him down, however pure his motive might have been. Ananias and Sapphira had wicked motives. They did a right thing with a wicked motive. God is not concerned with the motive behind wicked worship. He is concerned that the worship be appropriate and that it be right. They did not even know that what they were doing was evil. It's irrelevant. Solomon doesn't say, therefore, they are excused. No, they are still offering the sacrifice of fools. And it is evil. So what then would be the sacrifice of fools, and what would it look like? Well, it would be, for instance, proud and irreverent worship, boisterous worship. Uh, I'll give you a few examples that we can derive from this text and a couple that we can derive from other texts, and you can think of your own modern-day parallels. It would be proud, boisterous, loud, obnoxious worship, That is offered by people who are more concerned with speaking their mind than hearing the mind of God. That would be the sacrifice of fools. You can picture somebody who comes into the worship service and his only goal is to tell other people what he thinks, to express his own mind. That is, in fact, the definition of a fool. Proverbs 18, verse 2 says a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in speaking his own mind. A fool delights in speaking his own mind because he doesn't even think he needs to hear what somebody else has to say. And so he's not concerned not only with what other people say, he's not concerned with what God has said. He is only concerned with expressing the folly of his own thinking. He just wants to declare what he's thinking about. So proud and boisterous worship, more concerned with expressing itself than it is with really hearing what God has said, that would be the sacrifice of fools. Another sacrifice of fools would be an offering or a sacrifice of worship that is not attended by obedience. That is why Solomon says we are to gather together to listen, to obey, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Offering a sacrifice or worshiping God without any heart of obedience is evil. Picture, if you will, a a worshiper who, who comes in before God to hear the word of God and to sing with God's people and to meet with God's people and then immediately when they leave that place, they walk away only to engage in all of their previous rebellions with an unabated vigor. Because they're really not interested in obeying what they hear or in walking in the truth. They're only interested in making a show of their religion of demonstrating to everybody how pious they are, of offering to God some, some perfunctory sacrifice that they think is obligatory, and then they walk away in disobedience, unconcerned with obeying God. That, that is a sacrifice of fools. Think of Saul, when Saul was told by God to go kill the Amalekites and to wipe out everybody in the Amalekites' nation, and to keep back none of the, uh, of the loot for himself, to take none of it, and to kill even King Agag. And what did Saul do? Well, he, did, he did what the Lord told him to do and that he attacked the Amalekites but he killed a lot of them but he spared Agag and kept Agag alive and he took a lot of the animals, the best of the flock for himself and killed everything that was not up to par and he kept a lot of the loot for himself and his soldiers so there was obedience mixed with profane disobedience and then when Samuel confronted Saul while he was offering a sacrifice to the Lord because Saul thought that in offering a sacrifice to the Lord that would kind of make up for maybe not really hitting the obedience thing all that accurately and, and what I was supposed to kill and what I was supposed to keep, etc., So he offered a sacrifice and Saul confronted him, or Samuel confronted Saul. And what did Samuel say? Does the Lord desire as much your offerings as your obedience? Does the Lord delight in your sacrifices when you're being disobedient? And the obvious answer to that is not at all. And so Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of God? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So what, Samuel, what Saul offered was a sacrifice of fools. It was a disobedient sacrifice. It was coming in to worship, to pray, to hear, to listen, to participate, to serve, and doing so with a heart that is far distant from obedience, that has no desire to be obedient. Now those are, the, I think, the two primary ideas behind the sacrifice of fools in our text. I'll give you a couple of other profane types of sacrifices from the book of Malachi. Malachi rebuked the people in the Old Testament for coming and approaching the temple of God and for offering to God on the altar all of the lame and the sick and the blind and the spotted and the, the second best of the, of, the sacri- of the flock. And so the people would cull through their herd of lambs not to find a pure, white, spotless, perfect lamb to offer to God. They would find the lamb laying down over the corner who can hardly walk by himself because he's got two broken legs and he's got tumors all over the outside of him and he stinks and he smells because he's got some skin disease and he, he's wheezing and can hardly breathe and get him quickly to the temple and offer him on the altar. I mean, if he's going to die, we might as well die on the altar before the Lord. That is a sacrifice of fools. To offer to the Lord second best... When we have it in our power to offer him the first of our fruits and the first of our labors and the first of our energies, that's a sacrifice of fools. Another type of sacrifice of fools is that which Jesus condemned in the New Testament when he said, Of the people of Israel and of the Pharisees in his day, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is the idea of offering a sacrifice because it is some perfunctory thing that we feel that we have to do out of ritual or liturgy and we just go through the motions, but our affections are not there. That is the sacrifice of fools. So here's Solomon's warning beware when you come near, draw near to worship God, and draw near to listen rather than to speak, draw near to obey rather than just to offer to Him a sacrifice that is characterized by folly. Now there is a second take on this passage, and I want to make you aware of it, and I don't think it is a right interpretation or understanding of the passage. Having worked through it now, you can see if this is appropriate yourself. You can tell if this is right or not. There are some people who say that what Solomon is condemning here by the word sacrifice of fools is not not the sacrifices that I have just described to you, but the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. In other words, they read Solomon here in a very cynical way and say that Solomon is referring to all the Old Testament worship as the sacrifices of fools. As if Solomon is, is, is just saying, when you come near to God, be careful, but come near to God, Come near to hear, and don't worry about all that sacrifice, foolishness and all that other stuff. Just draw near to God and to hear that this then would be an expression of Solomon's cynicism and his apostasy and a heart that is far from God. And this, I think, this understanding of Ecclesiastes highlights a problem that we encounter as we try and interpret the book of Ecclesiastes. People fall into one of two different errors and they're on opposite extremes. Some people read Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes and, and they read everything in light of his cynicism. Everything in light of his, his alienated relationship with the Lord and his under the sun perspective. As if nothing that Solomon said did he get right. As if he said nothing right. So no matter what it is that he says, even if it's orthodox, they, they find a twist or a turn on Solomon's meaning to try and make it an expression of his cynicism. Uh, one of my commentators, Trimper Longman, Uh, is an exegetical commentary, but he has that approach. The second and opposite approach is to read everything that Solomon says as if it flows from the pen of a pious and orthodox Jew who is in love with the Lord and his heart is aflame in worship. Matthew Henry, who wrote in the 1800s, he makes this mistake regarding Solomon. He approaches, he, he sees everything that Solomon writes as if it is orthodox. And so no matter how cynical what he says is, Henry finds a way of kind of finding an orthodox or 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 righteous uh, understanding of what Solomon is expressing. And I think that the truth is somewhere in between. Solomon is not a man who is walking with God closely. He is a man who has spent much of his life walking away from God with his multiple wives pursuing meaning from under the sun without any thought of God's revelation or his truth. But neither is he a man that is completely devoid of understanding and wisdom because he was a man who was given a great gift of wisdom. But Solomon has not lived his life in accordance with that wisdom. And so... many of his conclusions are the tortured thoughts, the tortured soul of a man who has tried to live his life apart from that wisdom. So there are times in Ecclesiastes where we read things where what Solomon says is rock-solid orthodoxy and sound wisdom, because he knew these things. But then there are other times in Ecclesiastes when what we read are the conclusions of an emotionally and spiritually tortured man. The challenge Is trying to understand when we read something that Solomon says, how is it that we understand that passage? Which side is Solomon describing here? Is this sound wisdom? Or is this the cynical spirit of a tortured man coming out? What do you say about Ecclesiastes 5 and these verses? I think it's sound wisdom. I think Solomon knows, because particularly this is how he ends the book. The conclusion of all this is this, fear God. That's what he's saying here, fear God. When you reproach him, Approach him with reverence and awe. If this cynic has learned anything, it is that he should fear God and live in obedience to the commands of God to draw near to God to listen and not to offer the sacrifice of fools. Because Solomon's the the bulk of Solomon's life was lived offering the sacrifice of fools. He has learned from experience that that is not appropriate, that it is evil. And even though you might be ignorant in doing it, it is still evil. Now I cannot help But as I work through this passage myself, to be made aware and to realize how tainted with sin my own worship is. I understand that. My worship is far too often characterized by impiety, by flippancy, by apathy. I find it far too easy to stride into God's presence without thinking anything about what has brought me there or what has made that access available. I find it far too easy to pray flippantly and thoughtlessly and to say things that I would never say to another individual and, and have my mind wander. My mind wanders. I can't, even, I can't even worship here in a worship service without my mind thinking about something else, Maybe, even if it's my message that I'm about to preach. My mind is going there, and my mind is not here, and my heart is not here, and apathy is far too often characterizes my own approach to God. Um, An unwillingness to obey, uh, justifying and making excuses, Can you relate to this? I think you can because you're a fallen human being like I am. What do we do with that realization? That our worship is far too often the sacrifice of fools. I think we have to come back to the gospel, which reminds me that I am accepted by God not because my worship is pure and perfect, not because my prayers are perfect, not because my sacrifices are perfect, not because I keep all my vows perfectly. I am accepted by God because of the perfect prayers, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect work of a perfect savior. I'm acceptable to God because of what somebody else has done perfectly on my behalf. And that God is pleased with me And I come before God not because I want to be accepted by Him, not because I am trying to do something that will be acceptable to Him. I come before God because I have been accepted by Him. That motivates me to want to make sure that what I give to Him is pure. Not because I want Him to accept it, and because I fear being not accepted if what I offer is not pure. I want it to be pure because of what He has done and because I have this access. So you see how the motive is on the opposite side because of the gospel? Because of the gospel, I come here to worship, not because I want, I'm trying to please him. He is pleased with me, and he is pleased with you, not because you're perfect, and not because our worship is perfect, but because the Son is perfect, and the Son has given us his righteousness. And he has worshipped perfectly, and served perfectly, and lived perfectly, and died perfectly, and all of that he did to make us perfect in his sight. And so because we are justified, we worship. And so what do we take away from this? I think we ought to strive to be better worshipers, better prayers, better vow keepers, better sacrifices, not because we fear being rejected by God, but because we have been accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.